welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by Zina Hitz of St. John's College for our second conversation about Preston Sturgis. We are doing a master's series on the masters of comedy, in this case, in old Hollywood, and we have decided to go to romantic comedy, a genre I should mention now extinct in Hollywood, but which was once really the pride of America. It was delightful, it was funny, it was energetic, but it was also sophisticated and it had a very thoughtful attitude to modern women and men in America. What's happening with young people, of course, at elite levels, since these were comedies about uh, rich, successful people, but this was meant to show what would happen once these people are admired, they become harbingers of the next generation, so to speak. And uh, as we will show in our conversation, our protagonists in this romantic comedy, The Lady Eve from 1941, are a very good advanced view of problems with men and women that we still run into today. Thanks for joining me again, Zina. It's a delight talking to you, especially about the delightful Preston Sturgis. Uh, yes, no, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I love Sturgis. He's one of my number ones, so it's it's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about him. Before we get to the movie, I would also like to remind our audience that you are the author of a philosophy blockbuster in the year 2020. <laughs> the book Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life is doing marvelously well. Amazon reassures me that in the philosophy sections it dominates and I see it uh, reviewed everywhere from uh, the Wall Street Journal to National Review to everywhere else in the academic press glowingly. Sometimes I have to say blushingly by my friends and and it gives me no small pleasure as a friend and an admirer and a well-wisher to see you get some of the success you so richly deserve. Ah, well, thank you. Thank you. Now I will just briefly run us through the plot before we get to talking. The Lady Eve is the story of two young, strange Americans, but somehow very recognizable as the first interesting thing about them. Barbara Stanwyck plays Jean, Eugenia, and Henry Fonda plays Charles. They meet on a boat where the first half of the movie takes place. He is returning from the Amazon, where he spent a year doing zoological research. He is an ophiologist, an expert on snakes. And uh, she is a card sharp, daughter of a card sharp, played by the great character actor Charlie Coburn. And everybody knows this ocean liner stopped to pick up a man of such importance that an ocean liner would stop to pick him up. And so everybody wants to throw their daughters at him in hopes of landing this ale fortune. He is the heir of an American industrialist. Despite all the brouhaha, it turns out to be this young woman who seduces him and is strangely enough seduced by him in turn. She is witty, modern, very independent, beautiful, incredibly shameless. She is the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, he's a bumbler and a bungler, and he constantly falls. The pratfalls in this movie are delightful, and they just never stop. Preston Sturgis had great confidence in his ability to get the audience going. That's what Hank Fonda does. Every 10 minutes, he does another pratfall. And so that's the first act of the movie. They meet on the ship, and we see their entire meet-cute story, but it ends in a catastrophe. He finds out that she is a card-sharp daughter of card-sharps, and his moral instincts tell him to damn the woman and break off his proposal of marriage. 
And so in the second act, she decides on revenge. She impersonates English aristocracy, always the short way in America for getting ahead. As we know from Mark Twain, if you pretend to be a king or a duke, you go far in America. Mm-hmm. And as we have seen, at least two American adventuresses took that advice to heart and married princes. So it works, people. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> Here we see this young American woman impersonate British aristocracy and work her way through the family of this industrialist to obtain a second proposal of marriage from this hapless, hapless, hapless young man. And that all, of course, takes place where romantic comedies used to take place, in the fairyland of Connecticut. And then the third act very briefly takes place on a train. A very dramatic storm by night and heartbreak sequence. And then we get back to the boat and the conclusion. The story is as witty and as alarming by change of pace as this suggests. Things move very, very quickly. And also the locale moves very, very quickly. It's set in the world of luxury. Everybody's rich on these ocean liners. And that creates a strange ground of equality. These crooks led by Charlie Coburn, they're not low. Charlie Coburn defines them when he says, let us be crooked, but never common. (laughs) Somehow the beautiful is the the leading aspiration. The very rich people who pretend to be sophisticated and the crooks who by definition are sophisticated since they are deceivers really do have a great deal in common. And comedy effortlessly shows this. This fantasy is also richly observed American society. It's not merely beautiful people like Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck. It's not merely these hilarious character actors like Charlie Coburn, who plays her father, Eugene Pallet, the even more rotund man who plays his father, and of course William Demarest, one of Preston Sturgis's favorite actors, who plays a very angry and very vulgar man, the character who can tell the ugly truth in this story. They're also telling us what's happening with America, but we start with Charles, called Hopsy, by his parents and then by his beloved. He's coming from the Amazon bringing a snake. He's somehow an exile for returning to America. And I think that in a way makes sense. Hank Fonda is a bit too much of a Boy Scout to fit in America. He does fit more in the Amazon. Yeah, I think if you if we think of this movie as being a story of an education, especially his, although also Gene, the Barbara Stanwyck character, I think the opening scenes in the Amazon are crucial. He's collecting his snake to bring back to the United States to study. William Demarest, his watcher, Muggsy, is saying farewell to a native woman who he's formed a relationship with on their visit. But they tease him as he's leaving, you know, careful of the broads. You know, he said, oh, no, no, only snakes for me. So he loves the Amazon. He would stay there for the rest of his life talking about snakes with knowledgeable people. So he lives in this kind of retreat from the world, in the wilderness, in an imaginary world of nature, where knowledge is all that matters. And then he gets onto this boat, which is the beginning of an encounter with the world that he's been hiding from. Yes, he is also dedicated to science. We see him on the boat as all the women try to get his attention. He's reading a book called Are Snakes Necessary? He believes the answer is yes, but of course he's never thought about the snake, the problem of the snake. It's the natural condition. It's a parody of the Garden of Eden. But he's for sure that this snake is actually innocent. It's so hilarious. And of course, as he boards the ship, Eve, as we eventually learn to think of her, throws an apple at him and gets him smack in the head. From the beginning, this woman is very aggressive towards him. And the reasons why change. I think you're right that this is a romantic comedy written by people who are very sophisticated. The story is that the writer-director, Preston Sturgis, got the idea waiting for his third divorce in Reno. (laughs) 
and he knew whereof he was speaking, even though he was yes. not very good at doing these things. All romantic comedy has to be an education, an education for love and for adulthood at the same time. Right. Uh, these people are serious both about love's dangers and love's promises, both about marriage and divorce. It happens in all these impressive comedies from the 30s and 40s in old Hollywood. It is an education, but it is also strangely a reenactment of childhood. Now, he's very childish, but so is she in certain ways. She starts with this childish gesture of throwing an apple at his head. Maybe this is a rational jealousy, since she and her father are such clever people. Why don't they have the money and get the attention? And instead, this simpleton and his simpleton father, just because they made this beer, now they're millionaires. And they get all this attention and everybody admires them. And we have to say that the poet is firmly on the side of the crooks with whom he feels a great sympathy. They too put on plays and stage and act things. And indeed, Preston Sturgis' claim to aristocracy was strictly storytelling this other side of America. And in the movies, at least, it can get justice. But you see in it also an ugly side. There's a, an aggression towards this man. The woman first throws an apple at him and then trips him. It's a pratfall that introduces them. And of course, after she trips him and he falls over a waiter, it's her shouting at him, look what you've done to me. <laughs> That's the wit and the shamelessness of the woman. And she's just extraordinary. There is something educational even in this aggression, since it is really and truly the case that this man should be paying attention to her, but he isn't. And she has to attract his attention in an unorthodox fashion. Well, I, I think we can't leave out, though, that there's background, too, that it, that's in between their encounter. So, you know, he's getting onto this boat from the Amazon, holding his, clutching his snake cage. And uh, even as he's getting on, the crowd is gathered on the boat. The boat is stopped just for him because he's such a wealthy uh, prominent man. And all of the women are talking about how wealthy he is. So the, the whole project of every single woman on the boat, as soon as he gets on board, is to try to marry this young man who's the heir to a fortune. So I think we have to see Jean and her family against that background. That is, it's not just that they're card sharps, okay, and they're they're aggressive and they're, at least she believes that she knows the game. She's not interested in winning him as a husband. She's interested in raking cash off him in a game of cards and using her feminine wiles and her beauty and her charm to make that easier. And we had this hilarious series of when he's sitting at the bar reading his Snake's Necessary book, these series of women trying various uh, stratagems to get his attention, you know, dropping the handkerchief and haven't I seen you somewhere before? We get this all from the eyes of Jean, you know, with hilarious commentary who sees exactly what everyone's doing and is one step ahead of all of them and knows better than anyone that the way to trap a man is to knock him over. <laughs> by tripping on him. So I think it's a comment on, we're already meant to see, I think, that once he's out of the Amazon, he's no longer in a realm of innocence. It's not just the card sharps, it's these unscrupulous women after his money, right? And Jean has a kind of a freedom, right? That's part of the apple dropping. It's kind of a silly gesture. Is it really aggressive? I don't know. It's just, it's kind of out of nowhere. And it's very much Sturges, who seems to be one of the only people who does these, has this intense creativity. He just does things no one else does. So, you know, you have a snake scientist hit in the head with an apple uh, on the deck of a ship. It's not something you've seen before since, I don't think. So anyway, that's all just part of the lead up to this moment of her very deliberate, uh, very skilled seduction of him, so to speak, or, you know, winning of him over in order to win money from him. It's against the background of, yeah, this man's no longer a scientist. He's a man with a lot of money. And the purpose of society is to try to get him married so that someone can skin the money off him. Exactly. 
And indeed, Barbara Stanwyck very quickly emerges as a kind of director in the mirror of her compact makeup. She's studying all these women, tried their various ways of getting the man's attention. And as you said, provides commentary. It's almost like she's directing a movie as Preston Sturgis is doing. And we're obviously meant to understand that she's right. We are uh, on her side. In a way, we learn through her eyes. And as you said, one thing to notice is all these women fail because they depend on subtlety. And this man is uniquely unsubtle. The American male of the species is a fairly direct kind of creature. And so a different attempt is necessary. And so it's strange, but typical of comedy, right? That to achieve the highest purpose, you know, a loving marriage between people who are good for each other, you have recourse to the lowest down and dirty means. Right. You, you shouldn't be subtle. True subtlety is knocking people on the head when they need it. It's merely wishfulness to act otherwise. Yeah, I think not only that, but it's ingenious, her tactic as far as he's concerned, because he lives in his head. He's a scientist. So she knows that the way to get him is through forced physical proximity. So, you know, she trips him. She breaks her heel and pretends he's done it. She gets him to bring her down to her cabin. She couldn't possibly go unaccompanied. He picks out shoes and he puts on her shoes. So there's more contact. And, you know, then he smells her perfume and he's done as soon as he's close to her. It's done for him. And I think also it's worth mentioning one of the things that's wonderful about these scenes when she forces him into physical proximity, they're very intense. Uh, they're very erotic, similar to the, I think, famous scene in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, when Jimmy Stewart's clutching Donna Reed by the telephone. And it, you realize how much is lost in Hollywood going over the top with physical contact and how much you have, how much tension can be generated just by this, the man and the woman being very near to each other and very evidently profoundly attracted. So it's one of the great erotic scenes in Hollywood, I think, similar to that one from It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, conveying the charms of Barbara Stanwyck is not a particularly difficult thing, no. but it has never been done better precisely because here you see everything up to and including the perfume right. that it makes him silly. And you get a sense of the effect women have on men. Its power comes from how direct it is. Part of that is shamelessness. This young woman begins by thinking that this brilliant plan of hers, so easily, effortlessly executed, she can love herself for how good she is at forcing men to fall in love with her. In a man's world, she is effortlessly capable of turning their heads. She sees how childish men really can be. And at the same time, she thinks that she's absolutely in control of herself, which turns out to be a delusion. That's part of the subtlety of the poetic teaching. But I agree, we start on this modern world like Jane Austen starts Pride and Prejudice. If I may quote, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Right. It doesn't matter if he doesn't know it, all the women who come into his acquaintance will think of it. Somebody's going to have to be practical about things. And so, in a way, comedy is in competition with respectable morality, but it goes to the same purpose. The claim of the comic poet is that he can do it better because he's more realistic and he sees things that other people don't see and is willing to say things that other people don't dare say. Just like Preston Sturgis shows us how silly some of the things women try are and Mm. how smart some other things that women try are. 
and he shows you the possibilities and the dangers of each. And people recognize laughing that it is true. They may right. blush, but they laugh. And both the blush and the laugh reveal something about shame and about truth and about their relationship. And this, of course, is the first thing that sends us thinking about the Lady Eve, in a sense, is somehow breached by awareness of sexuality. Adulthood mm-hmm. for human beings is tied up with the shame of Eros, just like in Genesis, as soon as Adam and Eve trespass, they also become ashamed of their nakedness. They've become sexually aware. The comic poet seems to suggest that in a way we have left behind a certain innocence because we are so interested in erotic affairs. And then it's a matter of how to deal with them. But at the beginning, you have this amazing show of how a woman could be as scientific about human affairs as this man could dream of being about (laughs) snakes. Indeed, he's in a position, he is a student. In the Amazon, he was assistant to a real professor. This woman could be teaching a master class about men and women. (laughs) The only problem with her is that she's not charging. You know, what is the difference between being one of these confidence men and being Preston Sturgis, he gets paid to do it, is the difference. <laughs> I think that there's, the more I, I, I look at this film and think about it, which it's really one, I think, one of my all-time favorites. I think maybe Sturgis' best, maybe up with Sullivan's Travels, and one of the really great romantic comedies. But there's a seriousness underneath the comedy. And in a way, it works in the opposite way that you might think a temptation story works. It's the erotic, it's the bodily proximity that Gene knows how to leverage, which actually brings them in to authentically fall in love with each other. So what happens, you know, what do you do if you're a wealthy person seeking real love when everyone wants your money? He has a real problem. It's not a joke. And that's, I'm sure, also part of the reason why we don't get this story told explicitly. But he, he's justifiably alienated from the world. He doesn't want to be a beer baron. Uh, he doesn't want to be chased by women who don't care about him. He doesn't want to go to parties. He wants things that are real. He wants to understand things. So he goes on this year-long retreat to the Amazon in a way to escape the sort of crass materialism of his life. And it's very interesting, I think, that Jean, who considers herself the master of the realm of materialism and really is, she understands mechanically exactly how this man works. She can carry this thing off without a hitch. But there is a hitch. The hitch turns out to be that his innocence, his sincerity, his openness melts her heart. So she is now no longer an objective scientist of men able to seamlessly fleece them out of their money in card games. She is now a vulnerable person to this man. Then she has the dilemma. So he starts with the dilemma. He wants the real thing, but people are only interested in the money. Then her dilemma is, how does she manage to turn off the scam that she's already begun? How does she turn this from fleecing an innocent sheep into actually marrying him, which at that point is what she wants to do. And she's really in up a creek because if she tells him now that she's a card shark, she endangers her father and their co-conspirator, whatever his relation is. And if she doesn't tell him, she runs the risk that he finds out by accident or through other means, which is in the end what happens. So they become engaged. She successfully, by deft use of cards, undermines her father's card sharking, manages to only skin him for a small amount of money rather than a large amount. She gets them to swear that they won't cheat him anymore and they won't play any more cards. She has stratagem after stratagem. She's victorious. He proposes marriage. And then his guardian sweeps in with the evidence that she's a card shark, his ever suspicious guardian. 
And why does he have a guardian? He has a guardian to protect the cash. His well-being is merely instrumental to the fact that they don't want this kid getting taken in by sharks. So anyway, then, then we reach the first major crisis of the movie, which is these two people who genuinely are in love with each other, despite all odds. She can't convince him that she's honest, and he doesn't feel he can trust her. So they end on the outs. He's hurt and angry, and she is absolutely furious and longing for revenge. Yeah, this seems to start utterly in the element of the beautiful. It's storytelling, it's image making, you can transform one thing into another, and that's how, you know, one can play with men. But then it turns from love to justice, and from anything like happiness to something like war, to inflicting punishments on each other, and this suddenly becomes very, very serious and very, very moral. So there are limits that this woman needs to learn that come with adult life. In a way, she was an innocent because she was always living in this world of fantasies. Since men are driven by fantasies, by their silly desires, they can easily be played with. Her excellence means that there are never any consequences. This is Barbara Stanwyck, who was magical. Yes. But in a way, it kept her a child, as clueless as this young man who was running to the Amazon was. And indeed, running to the Amazon shows us, strangely enough, a yearning for nobility. It's dangerous, but it's also nature. It's undeceiving in a certain way. You can never be made the sucker of or demeaned. It's fit for men. Even scientific men have a manliness about them that prefers direct conflict to deception, intrigue, and all these complexities and sophistications that we see with poetry. And and that's the way in which he has stayed a child, and that indeed speaks to nobility and also announces, in a way, his capacity for anger and punishment and cruelty. What happens if that noble self-respect is betrayed? Maybe you shouldn't be playing with this man. But she doesn't know that because she doesn't know that, in a way, she's a child too. When she's seducing him in her room, she starts calling him Hopsy, like his parents used to do when he was a kid. And she says, and then when you get older, I can call you Popsy. And, uh, you know, she's always mocking him, but that mockery shows also her fear. He says, you know, call me Charlie. That's a man. But she wants to treat him either as a child or as an old man so that he's sexually not threatening. Right. And so also they talk about each other's love ideals. And this is where he begins to win her because he gives her this vision of the innocence of youth. He thinks that he's always loved her, that he's always known her, that she was always that woman in his mind that corresponds to ideal love and that he can see them in his mind as they were from childhood into old age and always together. And that's love's eternity that always strikes us when we fall in love. The beautiful has a power over us that is not even easily stated, much less explained. Here she encounters it. But the way she talks about it, she says that her love ideal is a practical ideal. It's an ideal you can reach. It's a short old man with lots of money. <laughs> That's right. And he says, like, why, why does it have to be short? And she's like, why does it matter if he has the money? <laughs> but it does matter because it is, again, an unthreatening male, easily dominated. In a way that is not obvious at first, she's afraid of men. She is afraid of adulthood, indeed. She is, interestingly, motherless. She has a father, and the father has a friend that might be an uncle to her, and they're all sweet and, in a certain way, noble. They insist on being superior to the ordinary. In America, this was stated by W.C. Fields as, never give a sucker an even chance. (laughs) You can't be honest with the simpletons. It's dishonest. It is unfair. It is unjust. Simpletons do not deserve equality with the wise. 
the radical inequality of the wise, even the worldly wise, is what's asserted here. And, and so they treat her as an adult. She's one of the gang, but she's never really learned how to be a woman. As she begins to deal with this, she also begins to experience fear. No, a terrible desire for vengeance, a sense of humiliation when he begins to think of her as a lowly, cheating, deceptious person. And so you could say that they stand for two opinions that are extreme, but that have to be combined in comedy. He stands for the opinion that honesty is the best policy. Tell the truth always. That's where his childish love of manliness or adventure and of science go together. He's not interested in knowing the truth necessarily, but he's interested in telling the truth. He has love of telling the truth. She has more of a love of knowing the truth, as you see with her studies of how women and men behave, but is obviously often not telling the truth. It's very different. But she seems to be of the opinion that it's best to tell the truth never. You always have to be deceiving people. And it seems like there's something wrong either way. And of course, you could say that, you know, people who are very deceptious, of course, they're wrong. Those are bad people. But you wouldn't see immediately what's wrong with telling the truth always. Isn't honesty the best policy? Shouldn't you be sincere, maybe to a fault? But it turns out that it makes him cruel because he's so honest. He cannot think that part of what happened to him was an accident or a mistake. We learned that it was partly a matter of chance. This could have gone another way had the circumstances been somewhat different. But he doesn't think that way. He thinks it's merely a matter of fault, of blame. And he doesn't think that the woman may have been mistaken in her conduct without being utterly corrupt. She tries to tell him in one of her more reasonable moments that the best women aren't quite as good as you might think they are, and the worst women probably aren't as bad as you might think they are. But she doesn't understand the power morality has over the soul. She thinks that the beauty of women counts, but the beauty of morality doesn't, and that men only care about morality out of hypocrisy. It's rich people who pretend to be moral, and then you take their money and therefore prove that they were lying all along. They had secret desires that they were not aware of, what they actually wanted was the favors of this delightful young woman. It is a very corrupting wisdom in a way that she has. Perhaps that's why she can fall in love with a man who is so obviously incorrupt. He has held on to his innocence and doesn't treat people badly. He has this other man, the guardian, who's always suspicious in his behalf. That's right. Who always says something ugly and often speaks the truth, of course, ugly truths invariably. You know, as a very loyal man, Charles Hopsey tells us that that man once saved his life. And indeed, he followed him into the Amazon. That's right. So there is this kind of manly loyalty there and a sort of aristocratic relationship of master and servant. But it turns out that the servant is wiser, smarter and disobedient. The sense in which Han Fonda is the master is not that, you know, he's the rich guy to this poor guy. It's that there's something noble about him. And in his ugly way, his manservant is trying to protect him from being humiliated, from being hurt, because he realizes that he's looking after a man who is an absolute simpleton morally, has no understanding of human complexity. It's not that our bodyguard here, Muggsy, has much understanding of human complexity, but he knows one thing, that human beings are deceptious. We get these really, really funny stories about the ways he's suspicious of everybody, including the bishops. Yes. Uh, if somebody does something bad to you, that's because he's bad. And if somebody does something good to you, it's because he's preparing to do something bad later. <laughs> he's <laughs> always suspicious. He always has something uh, nasty on his mind. It's kind of barking dog. Any stranger is going to get barked at. It doesn't judge whether you know, a stranger could be good. So in these two men, the master and the servant, you see in a way the best and the worst of morality. What it would mean to always be harsh to all strangers, to always be suspicious of all people who are not already known to you and to whom you are not bound. 
anybody unknown to you cannot be a good person or indeed truly human. And on the other hand, this other idealistic version where you could treat anybody well because you're simply not smart enough to be suspicious. Right. So very beautifully, Sturgis puts this comical pair together, Hank Fonda and William Demarest as master and servant, as the fool and wisecracking cynic. But they're both supposed to show something about American character, why people who are very decent can also be incredibly suspicious and say very nasty things. They do work together. They are friends, as it were, or could fit in the same person. In a way, it is a contradiction. Nobility and vulgarity are not the same thing, but in a way, they can be put together. Well, I think they also sit, when you put it that way, about this pair, that constantly cynical versus the constantly innocent, and the, the cynic being the watchdog and the innocent bumbling along with the help of the eyes kept in the cynical person. It puts Jean's character, it seems to me, in a certain contrast, because it, it shows off her particular talent, which is that she's able to distinguish. The fact that she's a card sharp and sees through everyone's strategies, she sees everyone's game. Right. I mean, she also sees that that Charlie Henry Fonda doesn't have a game, that he's innocent. And she's able to understand that now is the time to switch from cheating to being real. So she wants to turn the illusion into reality. The way in which I think she really is naive is shown in the conversation with her father, who, of course, being older is wiser, who points out to her that people like them aren't allowed out of their social class. You're not allowed to move from being a card sharp, a cheater, a criminal, to being the wife of one of the richest men in the country. That's not a move you can make. But she's so confident in all of her talents, she thinks that she can do this. But she's foiled. So she comes up against what you're rightly diagnosed is the weak spot of Charlie, namely that he's so unused to deception, so unused to human evil, that he can't see her for who she is. That is, he can't even see that she has actually performed an elaborate drama to prove to him that she's for real because she keeps her father relentlessly from cheating him. When her back is turned and he gets $25,000 out of him, she gets him to tear up the check. So she's tried to display as best she can her sincerity and her faithfulness to him. But he can't see all that. He sees the picture, he sees the card sharp, he sees the criminal record, and that's the end. She's not worthy of him. Yeah, that would seem to be a problem built into sophistication. She conducts a kind of spiritual warfare against her own father to protect this young man's innocence. He can never know that her parent is corrupt. And I mean, what makes these people so humiliating is that they treat morality as a joke. It's not that they really hurt people. Stealing from the rich isn't really hurting them. It may in certain ways be hurting the community or the laws, as law-breaking often does, but it's not really hurting the rich. What it does is it humiliates people to know that they can be played around with, that what they take as very, very serious morality can be a joke, can be a put-on, that people can say what they do not believe. And then, I mean, how can you trust people anymore? Well, you could say, well, you're going to use your own judgment to trust people. But if that worked, you wouldn't have been taken in in the first place. That's right. What the woman doesn't realize is that her expertise of an intellectual character, seeing through how people behave and using them, is undermining the basis of morality. How can he trust her now when she has proved that she can make cheating turn into morality, turn back again? And that is to say, for her, morality would be a choice. She can be true to him or very false. She doesn't seem to have any respect for the grounding of morality, which is a very dangerous attitude, and it is not infrequently the case in young women. So Tocqueville, for example, talks at length about young women in America, but not about young men, since he assumes that the women will deal with the men. 
And on the other hand, the men are nothing to write home about. <laughs> she says right. that uh, young women in America have something of an art of flirting. It gives them conversation. It gives them pleasure, entertainment. And he suggested maybe it gives them a kind of knowledge. They get to know what people are like, adulthood, men, and the future state of marriage, but without ever putting themselves at risk. Yes, the great education of this poor, hapless Hopsy, Charlie, the beer baron's son, you know, they part acrimoniously. She's spoken to him, made herself utterly vulnerable to him, and he's rejected her. She's raring for revenge, and he sort of goes back home. And we get this, first of all, I guess, a short scene where we're introduced to the third con man who is living in Charlie's hometown and uh, card sharpening the locals, pretending to be an English aristocrat. So she decides to come as his niece, disguised under a new name, Eve Sidgwick, who's meant to be some kind of a duchess. I can't quite remember her real title in England, is about to come to the beer baron, the Pikes for dinner. And then you get, it seems to me, one of the best scenes of physical con comedy in maybe all of cinema ever. It starts with old Mr. Pike eating breakfast and it goes straight up through the dinner. One hilarious inventive scene after another. Henry Fonda has to go through uh, three dinner suits. He's constantly tripping, falling, getting food poured on him. Uh, William Damarestis Muggsy is convinced instantly that this is the same name. You know, this Eve is in fact the woman from the boat. So he's peering around every corner, crawling on the outside the window, staring at her, serving food at the dinner table, staring at her to prove to himself that she's the same person and then to try to persuade him. And of course, he's never persuaded that she's the same person. Uh, he is where the movie ends, in fact, without us knowing <laughs> that he's figured out that they're the same woman. But we have Barbara Stan with Jean entering fully into the fullest deception that she can manage. So she's an aristocrat. She's going to seduce him as a member of his own class or maybe a superior social class. So he's just a vulgar American money guy. She has the breeding and she's going to do him in as only aristocrats do. So she has a plan for him. And the second part of the movie really is very accelerated. There's this long, long slapstick scene, but then it culminates in their marriage and her final trick on him, which completes his education. You know, we start this second part of the story. She's the lowest of the low. He humiliates her. You know, these are con men. You know, they keep photos of such people on ships to throw them out should there be complaints. They don't deserve to be there with the moneyed set. And she emerges as the highest, as low as she was, as high she exalts herself to be something that indeed can impose on Americans. English aristocracy, more moralistic than the most moralistic Americans. Tyranny of the beautiful in another way. It's not actors, it's aristocrats this time around. But again, she's these beautiful costumes that culminate in this beautiful wedding gown designed by Edith Head, who was the most important costume designer in Hollywood for decades. Nice. This launched a craze in America. Women wanted that Lady Eve dress. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So in this new guise, she pretends to be all of kindness and continuously humiliates this man to prove to herself what a fool he is. And worse, to ruin him morally. All of this leads up to the stormy night on the train that is supposed to lead them to their honeymoon, where she pretends to have had an incredibly promiscuous sexual life until he simply gives up and runs away and has one more pratfall in the mud in the night. (laughs) That's right. 
and uh, and, and she should be very very happy you know he thought bad of her so she forced him to think very highly and then very bad of her so that he could be involved in such an ugliness that he would never forget so that he could never trust again her desire for vengeance is almost as strong as her desire for this man and it takes that satisfaction which is a kind of equality he hurt her so she has to hurt him back that's necessary for her satisfaction because america is the land of equality she can't you know suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and still be a good wife she has to get even first but when she does she realizes what a terrible thing justice can be because she has nothing in her life now so she goes from this vengeful impulse back to her loving nature and it seems she has to learn that she doesn't want the kind of independence or equality that comes with getting even with punishing people who have treated you badly indeed in a way these criminals who say as charlie coburn says let us be crooked but never common they mean that in a way america has done them wrong they deserve well but the country won't recognize it in a way they're only taking what's really theirs when they steal and they prove it by conning people that is to say getting people to give them the money right they're not right. thieves they're confidence right. men but she realizes that that's not what she wants that sort of revenge for being demeaned by american society what she wants is this man's love and in a way because they're both outcasts from american society and so this is why the end of the movie has to be he's seen enough of america he's running away he wants to go back to the amazon where these sorts of dramatic things never happen nobody's going to break your heart better to risk death than heartbreak there's kind of nobility but also kind of cowardice in that and you know she is more courageous than he is she's more willing to deal with life's moral complexities and so it's she who has to chase after him at the end but he's very willing to take her back he is desperate in fact in a way for her he had longed for her he realizes when he sees her but couldn't have said so couldn't have dared and they fall over each other and they fall in love again but he doesn't realize that this woman and that woman are the same and this is the comedic impossibility all comedy requires a certain impossibility on which everything is perched right. because it's the only way to reveal certain truths in such a way that they lead to a conclusion it is necessary that these two things be separated in his mind that he can learn that the second woman was wrong and terrible so that he can go back to the first woman it was necessary that is in a way for that ideal of a pure aristocratic beauty to be trampled for him to be able to really love this other woman who is more like him more american not yeah. all that pure not all that elevated his moral vision was asking too much and she wants to confess to him but he doesn't want her confession he says you know just keep it to yourself whatever you know there are certain things american women should know and deal with but <laughs> quietly Right. You know, it's so funny. I I guess we were talking about this just before we started recording, but it's evident that he is educated by what happens in the movie. It's a little more subtle that she is. You know, she undertakes this brilliant act of revenge. It goes off like a hitch, just like her first one. She's obviously extremely talented at deception, and she can win a huge divorce settlement. And her father and other conmen are egging her on. You know, she can finally get millions of dollars in settlement from this divorce. And suddenly, she realizes that she wants to stay married to him. She doesn't want a divorce. She wants him back. So she's proved herself to be more vulnerable than she thought she was once again. And secondly, that her scheme of revenge. has in fact turned into a scheme of education which is then an even better seduction scene than she could have planned so inadvertently it seems to me and that's particularly brilliant considering how smart this woman is how completely in control of manipulating human beings she is but her final trick which is winning this guy back she does inadvertently 
she thinks she's getting revenge, but she's actually educated him. And the way she's educated him is by exposing what he's actually always known was the fault of the aristocracy, namely rampant adultery and deception and faithlessness, infidelity. And this turns out to be a thousand times worse than being the daughter of a card shark. His moral perspective is broadened. He knows what it might mean to be really deceived in the core of your being to trust that someone's love is real when it really isn't. Seeing that that's about the worst thing that a person can do to someone, he realizes, first of all, the corruption of the rich, that the rich are not morally pure. And secondly, he realizes that this beautiful card sharp's daughter was, in fact, more than he ever deserved. And her failings just turn into nothing. In one of these hilarious comic moments at the very end of the film, you know, he turns to the father and says, oh, yeah, let's play cards later. You know, he's happy to be cheated out of money for cards if he can have this woman that he loves so anyway, it's very, I think, like most of Sturge's, honestly touching. It's a beautiful story and, you know, a fantastical, but uh, you want it to be true because you want it to be true that somehow true love and honesty and basic worthiness should be more important than how much money you make or whether you're in the right social class. So there's a kind of American dream that's in the background. Love and sincerity can overcome any social obstacle. And Sturgis knows right where to get us, and uh, and he does. He gets us. Yeah, so in a way it seems that the problem for Sturgis is to make room for comedy in America. He says that the problem with Americans is that they're way too enamored of the English, of the aristocracy, of the manners, of the costumes, and they don't understand how ugly and wicked that could be. He's in a competition with this kind of sophistication, and he uses American morality against the English or continental old world sophistication that these aristocrats were up to. And he plays to American egalitarianism, and he says that actually American egalitarianism turns out to need not the added benefits or the correction or the ennoblement of aristocracy, but the correction, and in a way the ennoblement of comedy, which is noble because it tells you what's really good, and it doesn't let you be deceived by the beautiful. So in a way, Preston Sturgis is like the ugly William Demarest, always telling the ugly truth. But of course, it's the ugly truth tied with certain natural pleasures, love and marriage, of course, above all. And that's partly a statement on the future of America. In a way, you've got two options. You could worship glamour, this sort of notion of celebrity. She's the guest at this party of the rich and everybody's slavishly around her. But you could do something else. You could look for a more friendly form of love. The woman really does wish in a certain way to be equals with him, even though she is intellectually his superior. And partly it's because he's morally her superior. She is closer to corruption than he is, and she is given to more extravagant vengeance, for example. In a way, he can put behind feeling deceived, but she cannot. It's uh, morally more decent than her, and she appreciates that. In a way, she realizes that you need this in life. You cannot go through life one deception after another. Comedy also needs this moral seriousness. It cannot be merely supposing impossibilities and making fun of things. It has to reveal fundamental moral truths and help make them effective. The claim of morality is that love will work if you're not entirely too deceived or too stupid. You should be disillusioned about the beautiful in a certain way so that you can appreciate the beautiful in another way. Less glamour worship and more respect for, uh, you know, these sorts of natural talents like this woman possesses. But, you know, realistically speaking, they had better come with uh, some beauty. (laughs) Marriage involves that. You know, it is one of the things about the movie. It is, you know, she is one of the greats among the greats. And I think she's really at her pinnacle in this film, you know, in terms of getting the writing and the filming that she deserves as an actress. 
it's so interesting that I was just trying to think about what it would be like if this story took a tragic turn rather than a comic one. It seems like the tragic turn, and if I had more presence of mind just at the moment, I'm sure I could think of examples, but it would be, you know, that both of these characters are at the beginning of the film really trapped. Neither of them knows that they're trapped, but they are. He's trapped by his money. He'll never be able to find someone who sincerely loves him, who doesn't care about the money. And she's trapped by being a criminal and in the class of criminals, which means that she'll never be able to. She can only pull scams. She can't ever sincerely and openly pursue what she wants. She's removed permanently from respectable society by this, in a way, as you say, a harmless criminal past. She, you know, tricks rich people into giving her money in card games. So about the most benign form of Robin Hood behavior that you could imagine. So, you know, it seems to me it raises a question when we think about all of these rags to riches stories, and this is one of them, you know, well, what are the conditions whereby we can escape these traps? Not just the trap of being poor and being a criminal, but also the trap of being rich and frankly, in your own version of a crime world, right? I mean, what has his father done that's so noble? It's not as if he's won his money through heroic deeds. I mean, he's run a fine brewery. So we have to find a way to get our humanity in its fullness, despite these really, you know, in a different film, very tragic economic conditions. You're trapped and instrumentalized and unable to love sincerely and openly, no matter where you are in a social ladder. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, both the economics and the social class are big problems and they're not quite the same. What's so funny about Connecticut is that there's a bunch of people who are just making money whose wives want them to pretend to be aristocrats when they're not. And they don't have those pretensions because American men tend to be simple minded. And his father is very realistic about the woman, appreciates her in a genuine way, never wishes to take vengeance on her, and in fact tells her she's a sucker for not taking him to the cleaners because she's got every right in a way. (laughs) Very practical-minded man, and we see throughout the movie how much he loathes the fact that his son is such a damn bungler. Uh, You can't be a man if you can't take care of yourself. The father is a man and the son is not. Uh, see, I don't know, because I think of those scenes when he's waiting for his breakfast, and he's he's extremely childish, it seems to me. He's, oh, yes, that, that's uh, certainly so, true. You know, it's him, you know, sort of banging his hands yes, on the Yes, but it's because he's been trapped in a circus right. of aristocracy, right? We see throughout the day all these people, they're polishing brass and silver, running around with expensive cakes and all sorts of ideas. You know, a piano tuner comes to the house. That's not what he wants. He was trapped by success into a right. life where he has to put on a show. He has to learn on the phone that he's giving a party and at what hour because the wife is too busy organizing the social life to let him in on it and i mean how would she let him in on it he's a simpleton who enjoys his life and doesn't want these pretenses of sophistication he doesn't need aristocracy for dinner he's one of the people who like dinner instead that's right no he's a big guy right so we're given the impression that he's a a, he's a food person food and sex because he also loves the beautiful young woman who's come to talk to him he's a more primal figure perhaps exactly and those are more natural pleasures than, you know, the pleasures of sophisticated social class status games. And so he's reduced there, you know, trapped in the beautiful when all he wants is the simple good things in life. Yeah, that's right. right. uh, You know, he's got all these beautiful silverware around him, but can't eat it. Right. It's part of the comedy of America, of course. People who become rich, they're not sophisticated, but they're forced into it and they don't know how to deal with it and they seldom deal with it well. This sort of situation where everybody wants something from you and in a way you owe something to everybody. 
And your own, everything that's a need of yours, so that your desire, for instance, for more social respectability through friendship with the aristocracy just opens you up to fraud, right? So they're not even paying much attention as to whether these aristocrats who are coming to their party and whose cake is being decorated with the great seal of the house, you know, in this comic scene. They're not concerned that these people are actually just people trying to skin them for a little bit of money. So whatever they need, it becomes a vulnerability whereby someone comes in to try to cheat them. Yeah, that's a particularly delightful thing because the aristocratic yeah. crest comes with a motto, which is "Sic erat in fatis." Thus was it fated. <laughs> which is, you know, the joke of comedy on all these people. In a way, they are fated. And yet, these two young people can, by a series of accidents, they have to be beaten around by life a little. But it also teaches them to hold on to something that they know is good, and that's love. And shows you how much more people in the future will be defined by marriage, by erotic love. It will really find the family. It will be in some way the key of your individuality. Americans will wake up to being erotic beings, desirous, in need of a completion they cannot supply. And this is what sends them out of their families, out of their social class, out of their normal occupations, and indeed into the arms of poetry. There will be somebody who has to speak to America, not about church or work, but about love and marriage. And this will be the celebrities, it will be the beautiful people, it will be Hollywood. And it could be done like Preston Sturgis wanted, or in other ways that end up catastrophically. So, <laughs> right, but it's right. wonderfully prophetic. <laughs> no, it is. It's one. It is anyway. Wonderful film. And I think this is a fitting end for the conversation. There's so much to discover about this movie, and people will just have to watch it and watch it again and talk, and they will discover just how much delight there is to wit and to conversation, and how it makes love and friendship better. It's what Preston Sturges can offer us. And thank you so much for joining me. It was uh, thank you. Absolutely a pleasure to talk about this film. And next time, let's talk about the Palm Beach story, his All other right. great, rich, beautiful, romantic comedy. Perfect. Palm and Beach story it is. Meanwhile, all the best. And people, remember, you can just go anywhere you buy books and go buy Zena Hitz's Lost in Thought. This is the wonderful summer read that you might not have heard of yet, but you should buy and read. Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. For many reasons that we all are seeing the news every day, repose in leisure is woefully needed, and there is a witty, delightful way to get to it. So go get this book, people. Nah, thank you so much. All the best. Talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>